The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. We talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Can you feel it in the air? I feel it. Halloween? Halloween is upon us. It is. It's so close. So is sick season. Yeah, you can hear it in my voice. It's all of the sickness. <laughs> Two, they're very much in contrast with one another, <laughs> but like... You kind of can't have one without the other. Yeah, like you can't get sick without Halloween, obviously. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the change of the seasons. It's like a changing of the guard. And mm-hmm. also none of your white blood cells are aware of it. Whoa, what? what? What is happening? Yeah. Why? Yeah, but we're here. We're powering through. We're excited. I'm feeling very in the like spooky mood mm-hmm. with the upcoming stories, including today's. Lots of fun, spooky Ooh. stories. So... I have I'm no idea what you're about to talk about. I know. I've done a really good job of not telling you yeah. <laughs> on purpose. Well, before we get into all that, we have to ask the question, what are you drinking? It is 11.34 p.m. at the time that we're recording this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I am drinking a pumpkin spice latte because <laughs> before we know it, it will no longer be Halloween, and it's the true. pumpkin spice latte will be out of season. It's true. And so I'm embracing it. And I am having a great time. Sometimes you just got to embrace it. He's the best. I know. He's the best. But all right. Uh, what are you drinking? Well, I uh, am not drinking anything caffeinated, but I am drinking a zero sugar A&W root beer with no alcohol in it whatsoever. Wow. I know. I know. Wow. It, uh, it, it came in clutch. It really did. It really did. And honestly, these are great. I'm a huge fan. Was it, was it the A&W Zero Sugar Root Beer or the Zero Sugar Cream Soda that you thought was really, really good between the two? Which one was it? Oh, I don't remember. I think it was the Cream Soda, but now I don't remember because I do like both. Well, we'll have to buy I, I guess. the other one then. I guess. Oh, well, my dear, what kind of a feel-good fact do you have for us this well, week? I have a festive fact. Oh, a festive spooky fact. Yeah. So we're going to turn our eyes upon the glorious pumpkin for this fact. Mm. So the state of Illinois holds the prestigious, prestigious unofficial title of most pumpkins produced in a single state. They produce 500 million pounds of pumpkins annually, which is five times more than any other state. Wow. 500 million. That's in New Hampshire, you said? Uh, Illinois. Illinois. Yeah. 
Why did I think you said I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you should be having caffeine. (laughs) Maybe I should have some caffeine. Or Uh, some alcohol. Illinois. (laughs) Well, good for them. Also, an additional fun fact is Illinois has the, uh, I forget what the term is I'm actually looking for, but it has the the richest soil Mm. in the country as well. Which might might be why they pump out the most the most amount of pumpkins. Wow, I see is, what you did. I, thank you. Thank no you. one else could see your little uh, eyebrow eyebrow raise. Like, <laughs> did you see what I did? <laughs> I'm here to attest. Yeah, but that's that's I a little it. little fun fact for anybody who loves the state of Illinois. Wow, I know all the agricultural facts. So much ag. Going We're introducing on. a new segment: ag facts. Ag, <laughs> ag facts. <laughs> Crack an ag, but you can't. But you can't. All right. Well, well, love. What uh, what story you got for us this week that I know nothing about? Okay, so tucked up in the mountains outside of Salzburg, Austria, sits a massive and beautiful castle known as Musum Castle. Shrouded in mystery and with centuries of darkness, injustice, and bloodshed, Musum Castle has been the site of some of the worst that humanity has to offer. From wars against tyrants to shocking witch trials to werewolves on the loose. This one-of-a-kind place, lovingly referred to as Witch's Castle, still bears the scars of the past, with ghostly encounters and hauntings still being reported to this very day. Mm. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. Okay. So, little disclaimer out front is that I have heard and seen Musum Castle pronounced multiple different ways. I'm just going with the one that I've heard the most frequently, which okay. is Musum. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the castle exists in Uternberg, Austria, just outside of Salzburg, and was built on a mountain. So it sits at an elevation of 3,540 feet. The earliest history of Musum Castle is unfortunately lost to time. Mm. So we don't actually know exactly when it was built. Wow. Though we do know that the earliest known document mentioning the castle was a deed of sale dated in the year 1191. And many historians agree that it is likely much older than that even. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Very old. Musum Castle is a medieval spur castle, which basically just means that it was strategically built on a mountain, which would eliminate the possibility of attack on three sides of the castle. Because mm. it's like so steep sure, sure. on three sides. Yeah. And it also leaves a singular side much easier to defend from any oncoming threats. Mm -hmm. It's believed that the castle was also built on the remains of an old Roman castrum or fortress, but I'm not sure whether or not that's been proven. Hmm. The next known document mentioning the castle was in 1285 when the Prince Archbishop of Salzburg took up residence in the castle. And that's how it would remain in the centuries to come. Which, just because I'm kind of throwing a lot of terms at you, this very difficult word to say, is Prince Archbishop. Yes. It was an ecclesiastical authority. Mm-hmm. So basically, it was like a church-funded organization. And so they would seize the castle and they would send leaders to live in and operate out of the castle. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. So it's sense. basically just a, a title that exists within a type of organization. Okay. Uh, can I also say, mm-hmm. so far, I feel like there's plenty of tongue twisters in these names. I'm trying Musum my Castle best. already. Is a little bit of one Musum Castle, D- easy to to stumble around. Mm-hmm. Um, what what city is it in again? Outside of Salzburg, Austria. The name of the city, though. Oh, Unternberg. Er- er- Unternberg, yeah, yeah. Unternberg, Austria. Like I, that's easy my Nebraskan to, mouth is like yes. what? <laughs> and now Prince Archbishop. Yeah, that's a mouthful. That's a lot of, lot lot of sounds with your tongue and your teeth. Yeah. 
and there's a lot going on. So if you stumble out a little bit, I'm just going to laugh it off and keep moving. We'll just keep on cruising. (laughs) Okay. So then there was a good while where we once again have no documentation specifically about the castle, but there were some major cultural events that I'll get into in a second that start to paint the picture of why this place is believed to be so haunted. Hmm. In the 14th century, Moosom Castle became home to an Episcopal Burgrave. And it was this guy, it's basically another formal title. Mm -hmm. It was this guy who built onto and expanded the castle in the 1520s. And that also made the castle the administrative seat of the region. Oh, okay. For that like Prince Prince Archbishopic, Bishopic, (laughs) I think is what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Hard to say. Wow. So does that make sense? It's Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a religious organization that, and it sounds like denomination even, that kind of like the county seat mm-hmm. for yes. for a state's county mm-hmm. but in this case it's a religious uh, organization's regional yeah so so it's like <laughs> the, the, the regional prince, director the prince archbishopic <laughs> bishopic i think i talk about it again later uh-huh. but it's literally all of those syllables with an ick on the end okay is like the region run by that specific mm. prince archbishop yeah If that makes sense. Yeah. No, (laughs) that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So these upgrades that were made on the castle are what you can see to this day if you were to go and visit. So they've like, they've withstood the test of time since the 14th century. Hmm. So the prince archbishop that authorized these upgrades was a fellow by the name of Leonard von Kuchak. In 1524, the German Peasants War began. The German Hmm. Peasants War is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Working class people such as farmers and serfs, etc., revolting against the upper and aristocratic classes of the day, such as nobles and landlords. While it wasn't limited to only Germany, the war was primarily rooted in dismantling the power structures that kept the working class extremely poor and allowed the rich to become richer off of their labor. Seeing the huge gap Mm. between these groups and being crushed beneath a system that essentially forced someone like a generational farmer like to continue farming, but then they would only allow them to sell their goods like for very small prices to the aristocrats who like basically owned them. The people just were over it. They were super, super angry about it. Yeah. And I mean, the state of affairs at the time in general made movements like the German Peasants War almost inevitable. Mm. And there are also other things that would inspire the movement as well. The people were forced to pay a death tax to the elite when a family member died. Anyone put on trial from the lower classes were subject to unfair trials. They were, for no discernible reason, unable to hunt, fish, chop down wood on property that their family had occupied for generations, like without permission. Mm -hmm. Peasants couldn't marry freely, but needed government approval, and they were forced to pay super high taxes just to get married. And overall, like, they were forced into serfdom Mm -hmm. and... That's just at some point that's a bound to bubble over. Right. Right. It's, it's, I feel like it's been so long since I've studied anything about medieval um, governance, I guess is probably the mm-hmm. best way of looking at it. But what I do recall is just how basically inhumane yeah. it was. Like, well, um, like just the, the extreme chasm between uh, classes mm-hmm. was, I mean, you get one class is dripping in jewels and the other is dying of starvation. Right. right. Like that's as extreme Mm. as it gets. And that's kind of how it was. Like these people are working themselves to the bone 
dying super young, you know, mm, being yeah. crushed under the, not just their labor, but not being paired fa- like fairly yeah. for their labor. It was just a mess. Historians have also cited another historically significant event as a sort of inspiration for this revolution, an event that began on October 31st, 1517, just a few years before the German Peasants' War broke out, Hmm. when a hammer in the night broke the silence in Wittenberg, which I know that you know what this event is. Yeah, yeah. The the Reformation. So I'm not going to spend too long going on a tangent about this, but the Reformation began when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg. Angry that the people couldn't access scripture and that the Roman Catholic Church depended on that in order to like perpetuate their dogma, mm-hmm. this event kicked off making scripture accessible to the people sitting under Roman Catholic rule. So when people finally got wise to the fact that they were being lied to and taken advantage of by the ones who ruled over them, they too were infuriated. So anyway, the... German peasants war resulted in the homes and castles of the elite being burned to the ground, people being dragged from their homes and hung on trees. Wow. And it was a violent and bloody time in the area with a large number of deaths actually taking place in or near Musum Castle. Hmm. Ultimately, the peasants failed to achieve their goals, primarily because they were outnumbered and outgunned in every sense of those terms. Right. Except for the fact of there weren't guns yet. But there were guns. Did they have guns? They didn't back have then? guns. The army did. They had guns back then? I mean, very, very early. Really? I mean, they didn't just have like a Smith and Wesson chilling well, in there. Right, right. But I'm, I'm, I'm they had, news, news they had a artillery, so to speak. Interesting. So armed with only their own personal tools for war, like farming sides and things like that, they were really no match for the much more equipped ruling class. In the end, the aristocracy and the Austrian army slaughtered somewhere between 100,000 and 300,000 peasants during this time, which is staggering. That's crazy. Those are insane numbers. And keep, we have to keep in mind that a lot of this took place on castle grounds and sometimes even within the castle. Wow. That's That's a a lot lot of people people dying and they're dying for a noble cause. Mm -hmm. To be treated fairly. Right, right. You know, so there was one point in 1611 where the peasants were actually able to break into Musum, where they captured Archbishop Wolf Dietrich von Ratnau and held him prisoner for the remainder of his life. There were a few other moments where the peasants were able to gain some momentum in the fight, but overall they were simply not well equipped enough to see any level of like actual victory for mm. their cause. Since the first known documentation of Musum Castle and onwards, it's estimated that some 45 wars took place on or near the grounds, such as a crusade and the Flemish revolt. (laughs) And so with the land soaked in blood, it's no wonder that many people assume that there's some residual supernatural or spiritual effect left behind. And unfortunately, the bloodshed doesn't stop there. Mm. In 1675, the Salzburg witch trials began, and Musum Castle served as the administrative seat for the trials. Everything from the trials themselves to sentencing and executions of the condemned all took place in the castle. And as if the notion of witch trials themselves aren't dark enough, this one was particularly unsettling. Oh, Hmm. So I'm sure for probably at least for many of our American listeners that when you hear the words witch trials, Salem immediately comes to mind. Mm -hmm. The Salem witch trials were cemented in infamy for a mass hysteria that led to the unfair deaths of dozens of women in the late 1600s. 
While women are most often considered the primary victims of witch trials, the Salzburg witch trials were different. From 1675 to 1690, 139 people were put to death for witchcraft. Of those 139 victims, 39 of them were children between the ages of 10 to 14. Oh, what? 53 of them were teenagers and young adults between the ages of 15 and 21. The remaining 47 victims were of unknown age, and shockingly, 113 of the victims were male. Huh. So mostly male victims. Wow. The oldest victim was 80-year-old Margaret Reinberg, and the youngest was a little boy 10 years old named uh, Honorel. We don't have a last name for him. 10 years old. I cannot even fathom. I didn't write a content warning, but I'm just going to say that because this involves children and because this is like a very, very real mm-hmm. event. And it's, it, I'm going to get kind of graphic. Just keep that in mind. If you mm-hmm. don't want to hear it, then you probably shouldn't listen to the next solid chunk of mm-hmm. this episode. Just so, just yeah, so that's yeah. out there. So shockingly, or maybe not shockingly, if we consider the general tone of witch trials, all but two of those executed during the Salzburg trials were homeless. Mm. All but two. So 137. Of them. So they're they're likely also just eliminating homeless people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Wow. Very stomach churning. If we're considering the time and place of the Salzburg trials, we have to keep in mind that this was a time during Roman Catholic rule. And so the suspicion was almost always enough to get someone accused and swiftly put to death. And it wasn't just a Catholic problem, like it was also a Protestant problem. And people sure. like Martin Luther and like figureheads were quick to denounce witch trials and quick to denounce like the German peasants hmm. war since they were resulting in death. Right. 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 Um, just as a little side note that came to mind as I was <laughs> saying that just now. Yeah. So when a crop harvest was weakened by rats or other external factors, it must've been because of witchcraft. <laughs> if the weather was bad and caused damage to property owned by nobles, it had to have been the witches must be witches. Obviously. This led to a panic with both religious and economic roots that essentially searched for an answer to various problems within society. But really what it boiled down to was that anyone could accuse anyone of being a witch for almost any reason. If someone didn't like you, you were a witch. If you had a disagreement with a neighbor, you were a witch. If you didn't report a neighbor for their involvement in witchcraft, but someone else did, you were a witch. (laughs) You were related to someone else who had been tried for witchcraft. You were probably a witch. Wow. There was also a law in place that rewarded accusers for coming forward and reporting someone for witchcraft. These reports were anonymous and obviously incentivized. And there was also no risk because even if you falsely accused someone, it would never come back to haunt you. So there was no punishment for false allegations. Wow. Yeah. Once accused. Oh, gosh. So much. Once accused, a person was then held for a short period before being questioned by a judge. During their time in holding, someone accused of witchcraft would be shackled in the dungeon beneath the castle with their arms and legs restrained for days on end. During this time, they were given no food, water, or bathroom breaks, and so these tightly packed areas were absolutely full Mm. of human waste. And since these people were fully restrained, there was no way to ward off flies or rats. And so many of these people would actually die waiting for trial, being slowly eaten alive by bugs and vermin, surrounded only by their own waste and by the wails of other prisoners who were being tortured close by 
or who were dying from being eaten alive right next to them. Jeez. Just so dark. Yeah. In many instances, the only break from the painful restraints were horrifying torture sessions where the accused would be relentlessly tortured into confessing to their involvement in witchcraft and would be forced into naming the names of other witches. So I feel like I really don't have to explain this, but anyone can say just about anything under the intense pain of being tortured. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that these confessions were considered legitimate and reliable is absolutely mind boggling to me. Right. Like who wouldn't at some point break and say, yeah, I did it. I'm, I'm a witch. And so is my brother. Like, that's how it went. Torture methods included, but are certainly not limited to having your hands cut off, being slowly stabbed repeatedly, being stretched or getting branded with hot irons. The torture also served a dual purpose. If the judge in the case, which in the Salzburg trials, this was a guy by the name of Sebastian Ziller, found anyone like who was on trial to be too stubborn, he'd send them back in for more torture so he could use the person's reaction as an additional like indicator of guilt. So if you get tortured and you confess that you're in league with Satan, great, case closed, off to the executioner for you. But if you withstand the awful pain and misery of your torture, you're obviously possessed by the devil and therefore guilty. So off to the executioner yeah. for you too. Oh, geez. So there was really no way out of a guilty verdict once you were accused. Oof. It's a hot mess. Sounds like it. Once the trial began, the judge would then look for other indicators of someone's potential involvement in sorcery. And those indicators were almost impossible to avoid from the moment you're accused. So a couple of more things that were considered to be indicators of witchcraft would be kind of like across the board, not just limited to Austria or Europe. There were many, many, many things that Mm. could be cited as a main clue, I suppose. Women, particularly older or single women, could be accused just for existing. Mm. An outspoken woman, anyone producing herbal medicine, infertility in males, a woman suffering from multiple miscarriages or infertility, having certain items in your home, such as broomsticks or large pots or specific herbs. If you were poor or homeless, any sign of mental illness was an indicator and the list goes on. What I'm getting at is that overall, just about anything could be used as confirmation that an accused person was in fact a witch. Mm -hmm. And it was almost without exception, a death sentence. And it's really, it's really sad too, because the people were so afraid of witches because they simply, because they believed they were in league with the devil, right? that they'd offered their devotion to Satan and therefore are completely corrupted by evil and needed to be eradicated. And also people were afraid of like the idea of magic. Right. So, I mean, that was, that was what they said, but it seemed to me, if we just just look at the different places, like in some places around the world, these like witch hunts that would happen in these witch trials were like an eradication of an indigenous people group or of a group that's viewed as trouble by Mm -hmm. the nobles, such as homeless people or women who weren't behaving a certain way. Right, Right. I mean, it really... To me, it's like they had to have had that intention, like directly in mind. Yeah. They the, can say whatever they want to scare the public who is obviously ill-informed yeah. on all this kind of stuff anyways. And they just played off that fear. Right. They knew what they were doing. They essentially. did. I think they did. So the Salzburg witch trials also went by another name. The Zauberer Jackal trials. 
which is named after the figurehead, the Zauberer Jackal, or Wizard Jackal himself. So Hmm. I'll talk about this guy in a second. In 1675, a beggar woman by the name of Barbara Collarin had been arrested for theft and sorcery. There are a few versions of why she ended up getting arrested, but for the most part, it sounds like she was caught stealing something. And then after being brought in on the theft charge, it was learned that she was homeless, and so she must be a witch. So they added the sorcery charge after. Mm. Barbara and her partner, Paul Kaltenpacher, were both brought in on these charges. And while there's pretty much no information about Paul, he's been described as her partner. So we don't Mm. know if it's like, like PIC, like partner in crime or like a spouse or what. Sure. Yeah. That's all we know about Paul. Yeah. He's just around. He's just there. Yeah. So during intense torture, Barbara was essentially forced to confess as to how she became a witch. She told her tormentors that her son, Paul Jacob Collar, had made a pact with Satan. And her partner, Paul, confirmed this story, going on to say that Paul Jacob was a thief and fraudster of 20 years old and that he was the son of an executioner's assistant. This was all of the information that the authorities needed. There was a monster on the loose in Salzburg who was doing the devil's bidding and he needed to be stopped. Mm. But first they went ahead and executed Barbara and Paul before a manhunt for Collar began that August. Yeah, they got the info they needed and just went ahead and killed him. It was out of Barbara's confession that Paul Jacobs' new identity was born. The magician jackal or wizard jackal, depending on the Mm. translation. And with a cool new name came all kinds of lore that seemed to take on a life of its own in the years to come. Not only did Wizard Jackal have a pact with the devil, but he had unspeakable power. And worst of all, he was recruiting. Oh. In 1677, a disabled homeless 12-year-old child by the name of Dionysus Feldner, nicknamed by the lovely townspeople as, quote, Dirty Animal, Mm. was arrested on suspicion of witchcraft. He confessed to being in league with Wizard Jackal, and he claimed that the Jackal was prowling the streets of Salzburg, teaching all of the homeless youth the tricks of the trade, i.e. he was teaching them black magic so that they too could harness the powers of darkness. Very quickly, a new mass hysteria spread beyond the borders of the town and into the whole Archbishopric region, leading to mass arrests of homeless children, especially if they were part of one of the many homeless gangs in town. Which, by its very nature, the idea of of gangs of homeless children mm-hmm. banding together for survival is like so stomach churning that I can't even wrap my head right, around it. Right, like these poor little kids had to not only live on the streets, but they had to rely on their friends in order to do something as simple as find food or right. find a safe place to sleep at night. And then instead of offering them help of any kind, they were arrested and put on trial for witchcraft. Uh. It's like, this is like such a heavy thing. As more and more children were arrested in connection with the wizard Jackal, more and more names were being dropped of other homeless youth that were also practicing black magic, leading to more arrests. And as we've already established, the way that they got accused to offer up the names of other witches was through torture. Like if you tell us three more names of witches that you know, then we'll stop the torment. So they'd name some names just to get the pain to stop. Right. So twisted. As the numbers of the accused grew, so did the legends surrounding Wizard Jackal. Rumors of his power, what kinds of nefarious deeds he was up to, and his magical abilities became so larger than life that authorities became too afraid to actually find and arrest him, so they continued to take their fears out on the beggar children. Oh, that's so sad. And like, if you think about it, the Wizard Jackal was kind of the opposite 
of the typically targeted people groups when it comes to like the witchcraft hysteria, because most victims of witch hunts were generally perceived as like weak due to their social status or their gender, their race, or their less like popular systems of belief Mm -hmm. or even like their health status or financial status. And so the jackal being described as the opposite, like he was believed to not only be powerful, but unspeakably powerful, Hmm. not only evil, but unspeakably evil, not only smart, but almost like all knowing and all seeing. Wow. Yeah. Which only added to like his lore that followed him and continued to grow as the years went on. It's very interesting to me that like the main character in the trials, we don't actually Mm. know anything about this guy and anything we do know is made up. (laughs) Right. Like it's so weird. <laughs> like some people have even been like, do we even know if he existed? Right. Like, was this just a name that was given at some point? Right. Hmm. Right. So the Salzburg witch trials were conducted in an especially gruesome manner. Not only were these people, mostly children and very young adults, chained up in horrifyingly unsanitary positions, being gnawed at by rats and bugs while they awaited an almost certain death sentence, But when it was your turn to be tried, you would be taken from the dungeon and into an area referred to as the waiting room. While you're in the waiting room, you're sitting there alone in the dark with your thoughts, having to contemplate the fact that you're up next and that no matter what you say or how you try to plead your case, you will not be heard and are most certainly about to die. Mm. Like just the despair of being in that space. You would then be led to a small wooden door on the floor that you would be forced to stand on. And as soon as they were given the word that it was your turn, they would pull the board out from beneath your feet, leading you to fall 15 to 20 feet onto the stone floor of the judgment room below to begin your trial. Oh my gosh. So they would drop these people basically through- That's a long fall. That's a really long fall. Like basically like a false floor or like a trap door even. Yeah. They would pull it away and you would fall down. Oh. Onto a rock, essentially, from a great height. So it almost goes without saying that a fall from a height like that onto a solid stone floor will most definitely lead to serious injuries. Like, Mm. and I can't really think of any way there could be an exception to that. So you're there. You've just fallen from a great height onto an extremely hard surface. You may have broken legs, a broken back or arms, skull fractures, a brain injury, etc., and now you're being bombarded with a series of impossible cre- like questions. Right. Is it true that you're a beggar? Is it true that you're friends with these other condemned and since executed witches? Is it true that you have no home or income? Which, like, that's yeah. it. And it's, I mean, it was impossible. And then from there, you would be sent off for execution. In many of these trials across the whole world, the questions that you would be asked are 100% leading questions that no matter how you answer them, the judge would find a way to twist your words in a way that would guarantee another successful conviction. So they were rigged right. at every level, right? torture at every level, so scary to, at every step. Yeah. To think of a judge, basically, like, I'm, I'm curious what led to them just being part of it like that? Like, were they paid additionally for so many convictions? Like, what what does that look like? Because it just, at some point in my Americanized mind, I'm like, there's got to be a judge that wants to do the right thing. Like, somewhere. Somewhere, right. Any any of them. I, I didn't find anything about, like, 
like if there was any protesting of it or anything like that. But one can only hope that oh. some like somebody besides the accused was out there like right. this is wrong. Right. You know, it's just so sad. Yeah. Execution in the Salzburg witch trials was carried out in a few different ways. The most common execution was being burned alive. But if the executioner was feeling exceptionally merciful, especially when we're talking about 10-year-old children being sentenced to death, the other methods would be either being hanged or decapitated, and then your body would be burned with the others. So they would kill you first before burning you. Just to make sure, basically, that, yeah. It's less agonizing, Uh, essentially assuring a quick death. Yeah. And then you have to burn the witch. At least that's better that's the closest we get to mercy in this whole oh that's so sad 15 year period there were also a few cases of children accused of witchcraft who would be used as an example to the townsfolk so instead of being burned alive or decapitated and then burned alive they would have their hands cut off and would be branded with a hot iron across their chest with the brand witch they would then be kept in prison which, as you can imagine, is almost worse than death when you consider the condition of the cells that they would be kept in. But then from time to time throughout the duration of the trials, these kids would be taken out of prison and paraded around town to serve as a warning to others Mm. to not even think about practicing witchcraft or even consorting with a witch or wizard. Oh, that's... That is so That almost feels worse. It does. I mean, I would just be asking, just kill me. Please. That would be just... So awful. I know. What a terrible existence. I gave these stats a minute ago, but in case we forgot, 139 people were killed during the Salzburg witch trials. And from what I understand, that's not counting the deaths of those who were awaiting trial when they died. I think that those were the people that were executed. Right, right. Yeah. So like torture, starvation, infection, being eaten alive. Easily, easily be another hundred Mm -hmm. or more. Yeah, it's horrifying. All but two of the victims were homeless, and 109 of those people were killed in the year 1681 alone. This time period was an absolute scourge on the face of the castle's history, and that's why it earned the nickname Witch's Castle. And in all of that time, the main subject of the hysteria, Paul Jacob Collar, the wizard jackal, was never apprehended. Hmm. One would hope that once the wars were over and the witch trials had ceased, that that would mark the end of the castle's dark history, but sadly it wasn't over yet. Oh no. After the trial ended in 1690, there was a time of relative peace at Musum Castle. This lasted for about a hundred years until 1790 when the archbishop at the time, uh, Count Hieronymus von Colorado, that's not right, Colorado? (laughs) Either way, (laughs) It's a guy. Just another one of those. He dissolved the Musum Bailiwick, which effectively halted all church funding to the castle. Mm. So it stopped being a church-funded facility, mm-hmm. and it was, I don't know if it was publicly funded or privately funded or what his plan was, but that's yeah. what he did. Shortly mm. after, the castle quickly began to fall into a state of disrepair, and while many of the people in power moved out of the castle, there were still nobles living there into the early 1800s. Wow. So when a series of animals, such as cows from a nearby farm or wild deer showed up on the castle property dead and mutilated, the people got wind of this and agreed almost immediately that the only logical explanation for this was that there was a werewolf on the loose. So, yeah, there was a werewolf. Jumping 
the, the shark, basically. Jump, totally. Jump in the shark. In that jump moment. in the werewolf. Woo. This terrifying news sent the townspeople into a panic, and so they stormed Musum Castle and took everyone living within the walls and dragged them outside to be murdered right there in the courtyard. Every oh. single person who was living at the castle. Every <sighs> single one? Mm-hmm. They're just assuming. I don't have numbers on like, that. I couldn't find actual numbers. It was just the remaining nobles yeah. is all I could find. Yeah. But even still, there's a plural there. Mm-hmm. And even one piece person being murdered, like right. because they think you're a werewolf in your own home is like horrifying. Jeez. However, this didn't stop the animal mutilations. Once all of the known, in scare quotes, werewolves were dead, but the mutilations didn't stop, the townsfolk began to turn on each other, each beginning to accuse their neighbor, like maybe who was out working the fields too late into the night, or a friend seen out for a midnight stroll of being all mixed up in werewolfery. And so much like the witch trials, people accused of werewolfing and killing livestock and wild animals were sent to various prisons and awaited trials. And this is terrible, but even though Musim was unoccupied, people were still being held at the cells at Musim Castle to await their trials as well. Oh, man. And we don't... So they're, they're doing those exact same uh, uh, environments, mm-hmm. but in disrepair. Yeah. Oh. So I don't know. I don't know because I, I didn't find anything about this of like what the actual trials looked like. Mm-hmm. But like a lot of people, once again, were executed due to werewolf panic. That's, oh, that's so sad. Once again, in and around the castle. Yeah. So just, this place is just it's bubbling just over same. Yeah. with horrifying loss of life. Ugh. Eventually, the hysteria died down and people went back to business as usual. And there the castle would sit, quiet and abandoned for the next several decades. In 1886, a fellow by the name of Count Johann Nepomuk Wilczek came in and bought the castle. <laughs> so Wilczek was an Austrian explorer and a patron of the arts. And so he got to work restoring the castle to its former glory. And Musum has remained in the Wilczek family since then. Wow. That's a long time. That is a long time. It's since been turned into a museum that can be visited by anyone, but the stories don't stop there. There have been hauntings reported within the walls of the castle. And so let's get into some of those before we wrap up. Ooh, fun. Okay, so these are within the last 150 years then. Mm-hmm. Cool. First, let's talk about Tony's room. So Tony, otherwise known as Anton, was the bailiff and executioner at Musum Castle in the 17 and into the 1800s. And he was known chiefly for his cruelty and merciless nature. He had gained such a reputation in the area that many people believed that his delight in his over-the-top torture methods was crossing the line into criminal. Oh, wow. And others still were convinced that Anton's wickedness was proof that he had sold his soul to the devil. Oh. But bizarrely, Anton vanished without a trace one night, never to be seen or heard from again. While we obviously can't confirm what happened to him, this is the story of Anton's fate. So one stormy night, he was making his rounds through the dungeon, enjoying the fruits of his handiwork and delighting in the pain he had inflicted on the people imprisoned behind the walls. He then retreated to his room for the night, but for some reason he was feeling restless, so he sat at his table and enjoyed a drink. Hmm. While he sat and as the storm raged on, the night was interrupted by the arrival of a carriage drawn by four black horses. Anton watched from the window, slowly starting to doze off as the carriage drew closer before coming to a stop in the courtyard. He didn't notice the passenger in the carriage get out. 
but it was a young, beautiful man dressed completely in black. Hmm. And suddenly, there was a knock at Anton's door. Anton cracked the door open and saw the beautiful, mysterious stranger. The man smiled and told him that he was the devil and he was here to bring him down to hell. Anton knew he'd have to face the music and pay for his actions one day, but he didn't expect it to go quite like this, nor did he feel ready to go. He began to plead with a stranger who then made him an offer. You can come down to hell with me now, or you can be handed over to the souls of everyone you tortured and your fate will be up to them. Anton wanted neither option, of course, and so when he resisted the stranger and rejected his offers, he was dragged down to the pits of hell where he will be tortured just like his many victims for all of eternity. Wow. So that's the story about the executioner, Tony. So today, Tony's room is a place within Musum Castle that's said to be home to his spirit, with many claiming to be oppressed by a heavy dread when they enter the room. Hmm. Many visitors to the castle have reported hearing footsteps in Tony's room. Others have reported seeing a dark form moving about in the room, while others have claimed to have spoken with the spirit. Jeez. So, that's creepy. That is very creepy. So, the torture chamber, dungeons, and the waiting room also still stand to this day. Visitors to the castle have reported all kinds of paranormal activity from these rooms. From being touched by an unseen force on their arms and legs, to the feeling of someone breathing on the back of their necks, to the very distinct and unsettling feeling of human fingers running through their hair. Oh. <laughs> hate that. Creepy. Ghost Hunters did an episode at Musum where they were able to gather multiple EVP recordings, uh, capturing in the like captured in the various areas of the castle as mm-hmm. well. Hmm. So that's really interesting. There's like some dispute on some of them. Like they're like, oh, we can make out what they're saying. It's this, but they're saying it in English. And I'm like, the idea that these like (laughs) centuries old spirits would be speaking perfect English on an EVP is not very sus. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But it also could just be a misinterpretation of what they're saying. Like you're, you're reading it, something into it, or you're trying to hear a certain thing. Right. Or you're just, you're hearing something that in another, in another language is this, but it sounds similar. Sounds. Yeah. Right. 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 So there are also many reports of white mists and shadowy forms moving around, especially within the torture chamber. Ooh, that'd be creepy. Yes. Oh, boy. And by the way, the torture chamber has remained pretty much untouched and intact throughout the centuries, with many of the restraints and torture devices still standing where they were left. Wow. Which is just eerie. Like, you can look yes. at the photos, and if you watch the Ghost Hunters episode, like, they spend time, like, a lot of time in those areas. It's very unnerving to see all of the mm-hmm. devices as they were, you know. The current owner of the castle, Teresita Wilczek, also has told the story that one morning she and her father went into the castle to unlock the museum portion. And when they did, all of the guns that had been mounted on the wall had been turned upside down. Mm. She remembers her father being visibly upset because he was the one who had locked up the night before and he was the only one with the key. Oh, that would be so creepy. And it was like every single gun on the wall. With no logical explanation for the oddity, they both chalked it up to ghostly activity. Visitors to the castle have also claimed to have heard voices and screaming in and around the torture chamber, as well as the sounds of footsteps and pounding on the walls and doors opening and slamming shut. Mm. Given its bloody past, 
Even without the more colorful additions to the story, Musum Castle has remained one of the most mysterious and most haunted castles in Europe, and it's not hard to see why. Yeah. With such a horrifying history, with countless lives brutally and unjustly taken on the grounds, the witch's castle has certainly earned its haunted and very terrifying reputation. And that is what I have for you today. Ooh, that's crazy. There's so much dense history mm-hmm. in this episode. And I will say, as a little bit of a history nerd, that that scratches an itch that I don't know that we've like scratched this in depth before. Yeah. Maybe a couple times. Yeah. There's a lot of like just really neat history involved in this one. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that it's number one, still owned by the same family that bought it in the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. That's pretty wild and neat and crazy. But then there's constant new stories coming up. Yeah. That seem to tie well together. Yeah. I'm really impressed about this, uh, this story. And I'm really surprised that this is a thing that exists today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. In a well, world where we tear down everything. But granted, <laughs> I guess in Austria, you're, you know. There's an appreciation for the history, mm-hmm. I feel like. And that sounds like a hard building to tear down based on where it's at. <laughs> yeah, it would so, probably be pretty tough. Yeah. There's a bit in the Ghost Hunters episode where the Ghost Hunters guys are asking for permission to like enter certain rooms to, mm. and like to conduct certain tests and whatever. Yeah. And she, Teresita's like, yeah, sure. But do I, ha- like, I'm not if I have to go. Like oh. she won't go into certain areas because mm. she's so freaked out by it. And this is someone who's there all the time. Yeah. Like wow. she owns it and runs it. Yeah. And she's like, I won't go into Tony's room. Ooh. She calls it the room of Tony, which is yeah. sweet. That's, I like her. Yeah. She's really cute. <laughs> but I felt like this was like, it kind of ticked all of the boxes with her being like on the surface level, ghosts, werewolves, mm-hmm. witches, you know, wars, King, like tyrants being taken lot. over. Yes. There's a lot of, of, uh, with the history, mm-hmm. the established history, I feel like there's a, a mood that kind of gets conjured up with places like this and yeah. stories like this that felt very true to the time of year that we're in. Yeah. And so I'm happy that you enjoyed it. I did. Well, one more little bit about the, that history element to, to hear about a place that existed even prior to the feudal system, but then like really like had a, had a strong presence during <laughs> feudalism and then all the way up through the modern age. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's, that's seen some stuff. Yeah. That building has seen literal, literal cultures shift. Yeah. Dramatically. Yeah. Which is so interesting to think about in a country like ours, that's only couple hundred years old 250 ish years well, old since it's been colonized yes but. that's what i mean well since it was uh, uh emancipated like its own country mm-hmm. like 1776 its own country sure and from then like to think that there's buildings <laughs> that are older than my country's existence even older than my country's discovery like discovery in in air quotes you know yeah um, that's a different conversation for another day. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's, it's just really interesting to me to think about all that, that it's seen the changing of the guards. Like this building has lasted longer than the Roman empire did. That's, that's wild. This is the, is Musum Castle your new Roman empire? <laughs> is it my new Roman em- empire? No, but I do like the thought of something that 
that basically like scoffs at, oh, great job being an empire for several hundred years. Mm-hmm. You know, cool. Yeah. Cool. Here I am. <laughs> well, and it's, it's funny that, not funny, it's interesting that historians, there's no like real agreed upon official building date yeah. of the castle. And it's still wild to consider that the earliest documentation was 1191. Yeah. And like they're all, but they do agree that it is much older than even that. Yeah. Crazy. That is so wild. Yes. Unfathomably old. It's a thousand year old building. Plus. Crazy. Yeah. All the European Ooh. castle stories, there are so many good ones like this that I'm like, man, hmm. we should just do a bunch of castle stories. That's really cool. Wow. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. If you haven't already, please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast on your favorite listening platform or platforms if you uh, hop around. I tend to hop around between Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Same. Yeah. So if you do that, please make sure you also leave a glowing five-star review on any of those or all of those platforms. It helps other people who listen to these kinds of podcasts to find this one. And if you haven't already, please make sure you're following us on social media. We're on Instagram and TikTok at this one is a doozy and on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. And if you want to connect with us even more directly, you can do so over on Patreon. My love, tell them a little bit about Patreon. Yes. So you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or in our Facebook about section or you can go to patreon.com slash doozypod, and for $5 a month, you can support our show. Supporters over on Patreon also get access to all of our content ad-free, as well as two monthly exclusive bonus episodes Mm -hmm. that you can only get on Patreon. That's right. And for the whole month of October, we're doing a new fun little spooky series called Fiction Fridays, where Kevin tells a very moody, very spooky Mm -hmm. story. I on there. one Lovecraft story, so I know, you don't know what so else fun. is coming. And it could be anything. Yeah. So if you want to get in on any of that, please join us over on Patreon. And with that, everybody, we will see you next week. In two or three days. Oh, yeah. We have a bonus episode coming. Yeah. A bonus episode coming out. In mere days. Mere days. Dear, dear well, friends. Well, we will see you then for another doozy. Bye. Bye.